<laughs> hey, welcome, welcome to, to Beyond, Beyond the, the Test, Test Tube, a science, science podcast. podcast. Hey everyone, sorry for the delay. I know that there are literally tens of you waiting. Today, I'm thrilled to introduce Dr. Dylan Chung. Dylan is a fellow at the National Institutes of Health, which is famous for its leading biological and medical research, his scientific tools such as ImageJ and PubMed, and as my mother keeps on reminding me, Dr. Anthony Fauci. We discussed Dylan's fascinating research career, which looks at how mitochondria work in extreme animals with extreme metabolisms. He's a comparative physiologist, which means he learns physiology by learning from a range of animals, letting them teach him their secrets. He studied metabolism at the extremes. He's looked at hibernating 13-line ground squirrels, which, by some measures, can drop their metabolism up to 99%. And on the other end of the spectrum, he's currently working on shrews, tiny mammals with metabolism so high that some species may consume double their body weight in food every day. A quick housekeeping note before we jump in. Maddie Empey, the previous Beyond the Test Tube host, is, is leaving the podcast to focus more on her graduate studies. Elaine and I will keep in contact with her, and I'm sure she'll be back on in the future to talk about slimy animals, so don't worry. But in the meantime, you'll have Elaine and I as co-hosts. We'll keep hosting Beyond the Test Tube with an interview each month with scientists like Dr. Ali McLean in our first episode, or with someone who advances biology from another angle, like the artist, Julie Loret, or the Journal of Experimental Biology editor, Dr. Catherine Knight, who joined us in the last episode, and I'd highly recommend you listen if you haven't. With that, let's jump into the packed interview with Dr. Dylan Chung. Elaine, today we have Dylan Chung with us. Hey, Dylan. How's it going? Yeah, good. Hey, Dylan, um, before we get started, we should introduce you. So for those who don't know you, could you briefly describe who you are? Yeah, uh, so I'm Dylan Chung. I'm a postdoctoral fellow in the Lab of Cardiac Energetics at the National Institutes of Health on the main campus in Bethesda, Maryland. I'm a comparative mitochondrial physiologist by training. Right now, I'm, I'm working on mitochondrial metabolism in shrews. What do you mean by comparative? So I guess what I mean by comparative is that I'm not really using model systems to do to do my work. Uh, you know, comparing different species, uh, often you're looking at different species to try and address you know, questions related to physiology. So when you say you're not using model systems, you mean you're not using just mouse, just rats, you're using a bunch of different species, right? Yeah, um, I don't, I guess I've used, you know, some quote unquote model species such as such as mice uh, before, but within my career yeah I've, I've mostly used like very odd species so squirrels and and um the shrews and, and fish so and where did you start uh where did i start i started my undergrad at the university of western ontario uh, that's in london uh ontario i started a, an undergraduate honors thesis with dr jim staples so he's, he's part of the biology department there. He's a comparative physiologist by training as well. I, I also did my master's with him. So uh, your very first experience with research was in comparative physiology. Yeah. And you loved it from the get-go. Yeah, that, I guess that's, that's true. A lot of, of the comparative physiologists that I do know, a lot of them have come from different places like engineering or, or biomedicine. Uh, my 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 undergraduate degree is actually in comparative physiology, 
um, which at the time Western did offer. And then shortly after I got it, they got rid of that program and, and now it's just a biology degree. <laughs> I, I guess I, I was bitten by the bug early on. Yeah, so I, I you know, I did my honors thesis. It, that that worked. I managed to get a, a publication out of that. And then uh, I, I kind of shopped around a little bit looking for master's, but master's programs, but I decided to stay at Western and continue looking at um, mitochondria and, and hibernators. Well, it was obviously working for you. Yeah, well, <laughs> so they tell me. <laughs> so you, you started with, with Jim Staples and you worked with ground squirrels, right? I should, yeah. I should give a quick disclaimer. I actually applied to Jim Staples lab and- I Oh, really? It wasn't- What way? Uh, yeah, the, because of funding at the time and whatever, I, we couldn't make it work. Uh, it, was, it was actually recently, it was before I came to the, the lab I'm in now with Dr. Wade. Oh, to, to yeah, Jim yeah. Staples. Yeah, and uh, actually, Jim is Jim is happy to take anyone who's willing to work on the hibernator. So, <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's not like it's a punishment. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, like ground squirrels can hibernate, and they have all these cool adaptations that humans don't have. Like I, I would love yeah, to be yeah. able to hibernate. Did you want to talk a bit about what you did with the ground squirrels at, at Western? I mean, you kind of alluded this to to this a little bit. So um, we were we were really focusing on on hibernation in these animals, and um, you know, everyone sort of has a at least a cursory understanding of what that entails. So the, you know, these large drops in metabolism that occurred during the winter season. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, saving energy stores because you have, you know, low, low primary productivity and that kind of thing. But, and, you know, people generally think about, you know, large bears that are hibernating. Um, but if you want to sort of truly understand hibernation, you want to look at sort of the, the best models in which to do that work, you know, squirrels are, are really great because, you know, bears, they do hibernate to, you know, they do, exhibit, you know, some level of, of metabolic suppression during the winter, but it's not to the same degree that you see in, in, uh, like a ground squirrel. So, you know, bears will decrease their metabolism to like 70% or something like that. But, but hibernators, like, sorry, hibernating ground squirrels, they'll, they'll decrease their metabolism like 99%, um, wow. when they're in these, these bouts of torpor. Right. Um, and it's that, I mean, that's crazy, right? Like if you're not constantly monitoring them, you have no idea whether or not they're actually sort of alive sometimes it's hard to tell <laughs> yeah 99 percent um, you'd think they would die yeah it's it's a crazy how phenotype. do they not freeze <laughs> yeah well i mean there i mean there's examples with, with arctic ground squirrels where they have um they have adaptations to, to prevent that kind of you know freezing from happening the squirrels that we were working with there were 13 line ground squirrels um generally they their body temperature won't actually drop below four degrees or about four degrees Celsius. So they do sort of defend, they do actually defend a body temperature. Um, but what, what makes hibernation sort of an interesting phenotype, you know, beyond the, the general metabolic suppression that you see during, during the winter season is that not only do you have those really, uh, you know, really big bouts of torpor where metabolism is suppressed by 99%, um, within the winter season, you also have these periodic uh, arousals from torpor. And so, you know, the metabolism of these animals will kick up super high within a couple of hours to, um, so that body, so their body temperature is the same that it would be during the summer. Um, they're, you know, uh, they're awake effectively. They're moving around for a couple hours and then they just go right back in. So within any given hibernation season, you have these sort of repeated uh, exits and, and re-entrances into, into torpor. And do and you so, know why they do this? I mean, if, if, if you could figure that out then I mean, Jim used to say this all the time. If you could figure out why hibernators, uh, 
go through these bouts of arousal and and uh, back into to torpor, you, you say you could win the Nobel Prize. I think that you know, there's it's sort of like a a really big question within the within the field of you know why are they actually doing this? There's, there's some thought that you know maybe it's so that hibernators can actually sleep because they're technically not sleeping when they're hibernating. Um, there's some question about whether or not it's an immune response so they can you know fight off uh, disease and that kind of thing. Um, we're not we're not really sure at this point. But you can um, measure that, surely. But <laughs> if it, if they're fighting off in a, like a disease, then they would have increased inflammatory signals. They would have, you know, activated uh, immune cells. So, yep, so you, but then but then you wouldn't know whether they're actually fighting a disease or it's just they're just waking up and their immune system is waking up at the same time. Yeah. Right? I mean, I'm I'm not super well versed in, in whether or not that yeah that whole aspect of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it it is also hard to parse that you know the the aspect of the the, the arousal from torpor from those other sort of uh, the, the other. Okay, aspects I have a question that might sound stupid, but <laughs> are there any genetic diseases that would prevent a squirrel from being able to hibernate? And then would you be able to pinpoint which genes is important? Oh my god, that'd be that'd be me. I think that. So you're talking about so there's this might not directly get at your question, but there is some talk about this sort of hibernation trigger. Um, yeah, I don't know whether or not it's so in the to take it back to take it back a step. You know, in the squirrels, I don't know that you could necessarily you could figure out um, a way or whether or not there is some genetic signature of 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 hibernation, but. Another model that people work on looking at sort of torpor and, and hibernation are these, um, they're, they're, uh, the, uh, some kind of hamster, I forget which one it is, but I, I'm i quite sure so that, there are a few yeah, I don't know if it's, I don't, it might be the, swear, the Syrian hamsters, Okay. Um, but I, I have been told, and I've not observed, I've not you know been party to this, but I have, I've, I've been told that if you have enough inbreeding with those animals, you can actually prevent them from going into torpor, not hibernation specifically, because hibernation, you know, that that's entrained and, and that kind of thing. But when it comes to torpor, you, you know, if you fast and if you fast, you know, these small animals, uh, they can go, you know, suppress their metabolism, that kind of thing. But apparently, if you if they become inbred, then they become no, they can no longer uh, engage in that uh, in that torpor. Interesting. So maybe there, there, I mean, there must be some kind of genetic component to it. Uh, when it comes to those ground squirrels specifically, I don't believe that, that we know what that is, what what that genetic marker is. Uh, and I mean, if you, if you could, if you could figure it out, and if you could create a model for that kind of work, that would be that would be the the golden ticket because then you can start really playing around um, with with mechanism, right? The lab I'm going to in Japan also looks into the mechanisms by which they initiate hibernation, but. It's such a complex thing, eh? because like you asked Elaine about the immune system kicking in and whether that wakes them up or something, like whether they're fighting a disease, but it seems like they wake up periodically. So like they'll, they'll go into torpor, was it like a, for a period of time and then they wake up. It, it, it depends on the, yeah, the species you're looking at, but the, the animals that we were using, um, generally it's like seven to eight days uh, that they'll be, it, and it's, especially during the middle of the winter uh, it's very predictable like we would we would time our experiments around you know this animal has been in torpor for seven days you know within the next two days we need to be ready for this animal to to come out of torpor um so uh, 
this this idea of you know fighting that it's specifically for an immune response. Um, I think that this is sort of what Mike was trying to get at that like I, I, it, that can't be the only thing. I don't right. think. Um, so this waking up is regular and it depends on the species. So you can actually kind of pre, pretty much know whereabouts it's going to happen. But just to make sure that I understand is, so there's a difference between torpor and hibernation. <laughs> this is a question that I got during my, my I think my master's defense. Um, so yeah, I mean, hibernation is sort of this general phenotype of like the, you have this you have large seasonal suppression of metabolism, that kind of thing. To, at least to me, torpor is this any kind of state in which you're actually you have a decrease in the a decrease in metabolism. Right. But I mean, with as with many things in biology, everyone's going to have sort of their pet definitions. So, what was your hypothesis that you worked on when you were looking at this model? What I was focusing on specifically was this was this question of you know when these hibernators are, are exiting and then re-entering torpor bouts during the hibernation season, what is it about their mitochondria that's actually allowing them to go through those large changes in metabolism? And so it, during my I, I combined both the undergrad and the master's projects, but basically it was it's, you know changes in the the lipid composition of the mitochondria because you know mitochondria are, they're these you have your your outer mitochondrial membrane and then you have all the cristae which are those really nice foldings that you see uh, in you know electromicrographs and that kind of thing. So does the does the the phospholipid composition play any role in allowing allowing the mitochondria do they do they increase activity you know uh, during when they're when they're exiting torpor? And then I also looked at some aspects of reversible uh, suppression of uh, succinate dehydrogenase, which is the one of the com components of the electron transport system. In my master's, I was I focused on uh, reversible protein phosphorylation. So it, protein phosphorylation is a, a nice mechanism for for or in, in theory, it's a great mechanism for you know inducing or alleviating suppression of specific enzymes within the mitochondria. Which would be great for hibernation because it has to happen so quickly, right? You know, within an hour or two, you need to be able to go from effectively no activity to 100% activity. Um, and so, you know, I was looking at protein reversible protein phosphorylation. Back then, um, you know, we didn't have super great probes, and so I was using you know these like very very messy Western blots, um, <laughs> which everyone has a lot of people have trouble with, but. Yeah, I mean, those are the major things that I was looking at during my, my master's and my, um, my undergrad. Yeah. So for those phosphorylations, do you have a specific protein target in mind? You know? This is um, a, good, a good topic of discussion because, especially when it comes to the comparative field, sometimes it can be difficult to come up with those specific targets unless if you have some kind of you know, a model system. Oftentimes I was looking towards mice. I didn't have a specific target in mind. It was very much uh, very exploratory. And so, you know, I was doing these Western blots to sort of see ch changes in sort of global phosphorylation. And then we're using mass spec to actually see, you know, when you have these changes in the phosphorylation signal, what is that protein that's actually, that's actually changing? The, the, the sort of summary from all that work was that it doesn't really seem like there are these really large changes in phosphorylation, which can account for large changes in mitochondrial performance during, during hibernation. So did you emit another hypothesis? Because for quick for quick signaling changes inside the cell, calcium is a good one. Yeah. Ions are good ones. And um, possibly they just GPCR is quick, but you have to have an external signal. So yeah. you have to assume that something is actually telling the cell to do something. Yeah. 
what was your hypothesis? Because something must have cued you into substrate level phosphorylation. Yeah, I mean, a, a large part of why we focused on phosphorylation specifically wasn't necessarily that we had any indication that there was some kind of upstream signal. A lot of it has to do with the speed, the speed of the change in, in mitochondrial performance. So Dylan, I think I didn't, I didn't understand well that the substrate level phosphorylation of proteins you were looking at were within the mitochondria. I thought it was within the cell that would induce a change in mitochondria. Yeah, no, I was looking specifically at mitochondrial proteins. Um, Right. Yeah, it was was very focused on, um, I I guess I didn't mention this before, but, you know, when I was talking about those large changes in metabolism that occur during these bouts of torpor, you also see similar, the same phenotype within the mitochondria. You could see, you know, 70% suppression of mitochondrial respiration um, during a bout of torpor. And so we have a pretty good idea that it's something specific within, within those mitochondrial proteins, um, that's causing that change. So when I was, a no, when I was just finishing my undergrad studies, I went to work in a pharmacology lab and they were looking at, um, cancer drugs that mm. had an effect on apoptosis, obviously. So we did a lot of isolation of mitochondria. And, you know, I don't know if that's kind of a technique that you can use with um, squirrel where you take the organ and then you mash it up and then yeah. you bounce homogenizer. You, you do like a centrifugation where you isolate the mitochondria and then you look at what's in yeah. there. I mean, that's, that was the bread and butter of like all the work that I've done up until this postdoc, uh, like isolating mitochondria is like every single day. Most of the work that I've done to this point has been on isolated mitochondria. And so the mitochondria, like what mitochondria are doing, you know, in vitro, we're always concerned about ATP production, right? Like that's, we understand how, how mitochondria work, what the mitochondria are actually doing within inside the cell. That that's totally different. So that's, that is one change that has within the research that I've done that has that has come about with this postdoc. But yeah, okay, after you you worked with Dr. Jim Staples, then you you worked with Dr. Patricia Schultz at uh, the University of British Columbia, right? And yes. they're famous because they have a huge zoology department. So can you tell us about that? Like, what, what was your project there? And how was it at UBC? So the, the work that I was doing with her was trying to understand how mitochondria um, are involved in setting the thermal limits of, of ectotherms. Um, and we were using killifish, which is sort of her pet system. Um, and so, what's yeah, I mean, fish? they're small top minnows. Uh, they're found. They're small what? Uh, uh, top minnows. So they're, <laughs> what is if, that? You, if you ever, if you ever go to the, like the Eastern seaboard of North America and you, you kind of look in like any kind of estuary over there, you're probably going to find a killifish. Um, they're pretty nondescript. You know, they, they kind, of, kind of look like a fish. But if you if you manage to, to catch males, you can gener- you can sometimes you'll you should be able to see uh, they have sort of this banding pattern along their their body. Um, they're I mean they're a really good system for understanding you know aspects of thermal physiology because they, because they are sort of distributed all along the eastern seaboard. That was sort of why we why I was using that system specifically to to look at these kinds of things. Cool. So, do you mean to say that they occupy many different thermal habitats? Like some of the yeah. areas they would live in the wild are warm, some are cold. So you can, or they might have different properties. Like they'll heat up in different ways. For example, like different. Uh, a lot of it was it was related to where they were found. So, like you know, different latitudes, you're going to have 
different temperatures, of course. And so they're locally adapted to, you know, they can be found as, as far south as like northern Florida, but then all the way up into Nova Scotia. So, you know, because they don't they don't move all that all that far, um, they, they have become somewhat locally adapted to their local environments. And so um, the thinking was that they have their mitochondria should, you know, there should be some kind of evolution there, which would show up within um, when you look at how the mitochondria perform between you know different different populations, and that was sort of yeah that was the idea. I was curious um, about the phrasing of thermal stress. So thermal stress sort of implies that heat is something they have to avoid or deal with, um, as right. if the cold wasn't something they had to avoid or deal with, or or the cold was the default and heat that was the, the the problem. Yeah, no, I mean cold is cold is a problem too. A large part of uh, a large large part of the justification for the work that I was doing there was within the context of you know uh, climate change um, and, and that kind of thing. Trying to understand you know when you have and especially this part of why we are using that killifish system. You know when you have different species that are, are sort of local populations that are adapted to different temperatures. You know if you have uh, a subpopulation or a population that is better adapted to to high temperatures, you know, is there, is there something about the mitochondria that allows them to handle those super high temperatures and, you know, maybe vice versa for those more Northern populations are more locally, they're locally adapted to those sort of colder, colder climates. And, um, is, is there something about the mitochondria that, that prevents them from, from handling those high temperatures? That's not to say that, you know, low temperatures aren't a problem. They absolutely are, you know, a fish will still die at low temperatures, um, low enough temperatures. Um, but, that I, I I did look at some aspects of low temperature stuff, but I think the mechanisms that you know cause fish to die at high and low temperatures as it relates to mitochondria, I think they're totally different. So what did you find? In, like, what was the takeaway from your work with with Dr. Schulte? That's a, a, a one-liner for for how many years of work? Um, it, I guess it's it's complicated. Yeah, or just a finding, like one. You know, it doesn't have to be a summative. <laughs> oh, I guess the the a finding is that you know generally when we think about temperature tolerance as it relates to animals, um, oftentimes we're thinking about acute temperature tolerance, and so that's like if you're rapidly changing the temperature on an animal, and it dies. Mitochondria probably aren't the reason why those animals are dying. What I do believe I found was that it might not be failure of mitochondria that's causing acute temperature failure. But when it comes to longer time scales, like if you have a fish that's exposed to high temperatures for longer periods of time, mitochondria still show signatures of, of, of failing. And so, you know, over those longer time scales, I think that mitochondria become much more important. That's fascinating. I used to manage a fish department at a pet store back in Ottawa, mm -hmm. and uh, we used to order fancy fish from all over the world, like batfish and um, arowana and things like that. And then mm -hmm. we ordered some killifish, and there are all these different types, right? So there, there are perennial ones, which can live the entire year, and yeah. then there are these annual ones, uh, which just die every year, and then they'll like plant a bunch of their eggs. And there's a whole community of people that, um, you know, find a way to take the eggs that these fish lay. They'll lay a couple eggs a day sometimes, depending on the species. And they'll put right. them in like a peat moss or something. And you can just literally, after a while, take the peat moss out and then just wrap that up and put it in a Tupperware container 
until next year and you just take it out and you have a bunch of fish partially dried even and you, you still get fish from it so i always wondered if these fish are perennials these killifish are perennials and uh, uh the so the species that i was working with uh they're perennials um they weren't dying each year i will say that they they are extremely prolific you know the areas in which we were catching these fish uh yeah i went out a couple times to to catch animals to ship them back to to ubc i mean you know you could catch thousands of fish easily within an hour or so. But it's strange to me that if it's your model organism, you can actually keep it, um, you know. Yeah, I mean, you can, yeah, you can, facility. You can breed them. Yep. Yeah. Why did you have to go and pick some out of the wild? I don't understand that. In a perfect world, we would we would have had a, a breeding colony because you can also breed them in captivity. They do that quite re quite readily. Um, in a perfect world, we would have done that. We would have had, you know, some some animals that we would catch caught from the wild. And the other thing with in doing that is that you would be able to control the crosses, right? So if you have these different populations, you can do these crosses, and people do that absolutely, especially with killifish. The reason why we ended up doing it, part of it is that we just that we were using so many animals. <laughs> and it's also a, you, you know, when you talk about model organisms like mice and Drosophila, you have large infrastructures which allow you to. Uh, allow you to maintain those animals quite easily. You have you know, a lot of technicians to do that kind of work. Uh, I guess within comparative physiology, those kinds of that kind of infrastructure doesn't necessarily exist. Part of it has to do with the strange diseases that, you know, things like squirrels will, will have. A lot of it has to do with actually having the, the, the labor available to maintain things sort of long term. You have to it's a, you have to make a large, a large concerted effort to make sure that those those lines uh, stay within this within your institution, and so when it came to you know when I started in the lab, I I was told you, you have to go out into the field and go catch catch these animals. I, I don't I don't begrudge having to go out there. I mean it's I think it is especially for comparative physiologists it is a really important part of your training like actually seeing where your animals live out in the wild uh, because you you do sort of get a, a much larger appreciation for what these animals are doing. Is there also a benefit when you go to the wild? Cause you can then sample from areas with different temperatures and then compare the biology of the animals from those different regions. But you could still do that in a lab, couldn't you? Well, you could have different tanks with different temperatures and you people, could yeah, put yeah, the fish from that. the cold temperature in the hot tank and, you know. And that's actually, yeah, I mean, that's, that is part of what I was doing. Um, uh, in my experiments, I was, you know, I was manipulating the temperature that these fish were being held at and, you know, measuring their, their mitochondria. Um, right. But I mean, I guess to get at Mike's point, like, um, I think there's sort of two competing things there where one, you know, if you have all these things occurring in the lab, you have much more control over what's going on. But then there are sort of some comparative physiologists and environmental physiologists who feel that you actually want to see what these animals are actually doing in the wild. You know, like, how are they actually performing? It's much messier, of course, but you do sort of get a better idea of what's actually going on or where these animals actually live. And I think that there is something to be said for that. Let's move on to the next lab. So now you are a postdoc at Dr. Robert Balaban's lab at, at the NIH, right? Here at the NIH, I'm, I'm still doing comparative work. I'm, I'm looking at shrews, whereas, you know, during my master's and my, my PhD, a lot of my focus on mitochondria bio, or mitochondria was from the biochemistry perspective. Um, so, you know, doing respirometry assays and, and that kind of thing. But here, 
at least currently uh, with these with the shrews, I'm I'm doing a lot more uh, microscopy work. So um, a lot more um, you know like 3D electron microscopy and that kind of stuff. At least as it relates to work, working with shrews, uh, the the major reason why we're we're using them is that they have just a crazy high metabolism. So uh, the, the the my favorite example is that you know there are some recordings of of heart rates of up to 1500 beats per minute uh, in these animals. Um, they're they're extremely small. You know, they're they're the charismatic, which is always, which is always great. <laughs> it helps sell help, uh, the model. I'm just doing the math in my head. So 1500 beats per minute. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's an all time, like high is, is either like, yeah, 1500 um, was like an all time high recording. I think that the, the average high was uh, like 1100 beats per minute. <laughs> Anyways, a lot of beats per second. That's crazy. That's just, it, it, it's really insane. You also said they might yeah. not right there there's some controversy whether they actually sleep because they're so active yeah i mean i yeah so there's this there, there's some question about whether or not they sleep um so from what i've come across in the literature uh so i mean these animals because their metabolism metabolism is so high there's some thinking that they they basically live in like these two to three hour cycles where they scurry around for the better parts of two hours trying to find food they find some food um, and then they will sort of sit for the remainder of that two to three hours, and then they'll have to eat again. Because if you, if you, um, trap these animals and people generally use these pitfall traps, um, you have to, and you're looking for shrews, you have to check them constantly because they just can't survive without food for that long, um, more than about two hours, I believe. Um, and then there's also documented cases of shrews falling into pit traps with mice, and then the shrews kill the mice and eat them because they, they just have such a high drive to eat. Their metabolism is absolutely insane. But they don't do yeah, a, I, a nocturnal or a diurnal lifestyle. Yeah, I, mean, don't, I, I think that they exhibit you know, some, uh, I, I have some, some poor recordings of, like, of, of movement and that kind of thing when they were in a respirometry chamber. And I think that there may be some diurnal aspect to it that they might be a little bit more active during the day. But, you know, even at, even at night, I'm pretty sure that they're still just constantly moving around because they, they just can't, they can't go without food for that long. Yeah. Are the shrews you're using taken from the wild or are they bred? Um, the, the shrews that I am actually using, they're, they've been part of a colony that's uh, ongoing now since like the 70s. Mm. I, forget, I think it was a guy in Ohio. He decided that shrews would be a really good system to do work with i forget what what his justification was but it's great for me because uh I'm, I'm actually able to use the shoes for my research so these there's a there's a couple of labs that sort of took those shoes the initial colony shoes so now they're they're maintaining them and so i've, I've got in contact with a, a collaborator out in california and, and we took some of those shoes and now that the colony is ongoing here at the nih it's a lot of effort to keep shoes alive because they have such high metabolism you can't you can't just shove them into a mouse cage and then hope that they'll be okay. There there's a lot of quirks with keeping shrews alive. Well, you so, have to have these because you can't just take stuff from the wild all the time. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the other issues of, of of you know maintaining these formerly wild animals in the lab is that you can end up with these sort of like genetic bottlenecks, right? Like if you don't if you're not very careful about how you're breeding them. Um, and then I, I think I, I had mentioned this before with the, the the hamsters where they were losing that torpor phenotype right. because they were becoming so inbred. Um, where you know, there's some concern with that, similar things happening with the shrews. And the other the other issue is that 
you know, if you maintain these animals in captivity for too long, that they become the, like, you know, obese and that kind of thing, right? That, that that's pretty common, um, that if you're not carefully controlling their diets and their activity, that they, that you start ending up with a completely different phenotype as a result of right. their captivity. So their mitochondria must be in overdrive all the time as well. I mean, that exactly. So that's why we're, why I'm looking at them as a, as a model system that, you know, if they have this super high metabolism, their mitochondria exactly must be in, in overdrive. And so the major things I'm looking at right now, the, the major te technique that I'm using now is this focus eye on beam uh, scanning electron microscopy. And so basically I'm trying to build these 3D uh, volumes, looking at what the mitochondria look like, how much space within the cell is filled with mitochondria. And yeah, they're livers and their kidneys have the same mitochondrial density as the heart. And if you think about, you know, how much work their hearts must be doing, the fact that their livers and kidneys have just as much mitochondria is, is kind of crazy. You know, why, why are their shoe livers doing as much as they, they are doing? Um, and it's, that sort of gets at questions about, you know, like allometry. So these sort of size scaling relationships as they relate to metabolism, and which is a much bigger, older question within biology, but yeah, you know, it's their, their mitochondria are, are crazy, I, I guess, within, when you look at livers, when you look at tissues like the liver and, and the kidney. So that's um, interesting because between all the organisms that you've studied and they're quite mm -hmm. different, right? So the first ones were hibernating. So the mitochondria were really slow, presumably, yeah. and now you're going to really high. Mm -hmm. And I would, so in each of the tissues, so the density of mitochondria would be different according to the different tissues, like you said, in liver and the, in the heart, they're really, you know, numerous in the mm -hmm. really super hyperdrive uh, organism. So, you know, when it comes to different species, your mitochondria are going to be different. Absolutely. Um, so I guess the best example is, you know, if you compare a warm blooded animal versus a cold blooded animal, one of the classic examples is that the membranes that make up their mitochondria, they're, they're different. Um, they're, you know, when it comes to the, the, the function of those mitochondria, they're, they are also different as well. They, they tend so mitochondria within warm blooded animals tend to be what we call more leaky, um, which means that, um, and I don't know whether or not we're getting too, into too much technical jargon here, but, uh, that, that proton motor force that mitochondria are, are generate, uh, you tend to dissipate that quite more, quite a lot more readily within um, within warm blooded within warm blooded animals. When it comes to which it, makes it, sense because we need the heat. But I think my question was more about which tissue has the most mitochondria. Depend you know depending on which organisms you're looking at. So uh, in okay. a fish, it might be completely different. In a hibernating animal, it might be completely different. Um, right. Whether it's warm blooded, cold blooded. So how is the repartition, I'm sorry, that's a red word. Um, how, so this proportion of mitochondria, are they more numerous in certain tissue in warm-blooded or according to the different organisms that you've looked at? Yeah, um, so it depends on the tissue, I guess is a short answer. So in the heart, and I guess it's sort of an interesting thing, um, when you look at the heart and uh, in the hearts of mammals across different sizes, the amount of mitochondria that you have on a per cell basis is, is more or less the same. Cool. Uh, but when you look at something like the tissue, as you get to larger and larger mammals, the amount of mitochondria that you have in, on, within each cell actually decreases. And that's actually, uh, you know, that 
that's that relates to that sort of allometric um the there's a uh, allometric scaling of basal metabolism when you're comparing uh, mitochondria between warm-blooded and cold-blooded animals you know i don't actually know off the top of my head how much mitochondria you have when you're in something like a fish in the heart um yeah that's actually a really good question i, I imagine that some listeners are asking themselves we know what mitochondria do we know that they're the powerhouse of the cell uh what would you say to those listeners i mean we we, we understand large aspects of, you know, if you have an isolated mitochondria and um, we, we understand there's a, sort of the bio, the biochemistry and, and um, you know, if you give it some substrate, you know, what is it going to do? You know, is it, you know, where do those electrons go within the electron transport system and, and that kind of thing. Um, I think that why we still have, you know, the field of mitochondrial physiology um, is because we don't understand what the mitochondria is doing in relation to the whole animal. You know, people say, you know, mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell, they're producing ATP, and we need ATP to, to do cell functions, quote unquote. But when we actually look, you know, within the literature for like, you know, what are mitochondria actually doing when you have them inside of the animal? Um, and especially when it comes to things like changes in workload, um, you know, we don't actually really have a good understanding of, of how we link what's happening within the cell, within those mitochondria, and then moving up high, up to higher levels of biological organization. So I think I don't think that we know everything about about mitochondria. I, I don't think that's that's true at all. Um, there's there's still so much out there, for right. sure. Okay. So let's do a, a quick um, speed round here. Are mitochondria the powerhouse of the cell? Yes. <laughs> it it, it, it does make me cringe. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, direct answers bother every scientist. It's okay. Um, <laughs> What do mitochondria do? It depends on the tissue. So I mean, like in, in the, okay. The short answer is they produce ATP, but they do a lot of other stuff. Like in the liver, you have a lot of urea cycling. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's all kinds of functions that mitochondria are responsible for. The main one that people are concerned with is ATP production. How about calcium signaling? I mean, there's like, they're like a pump. They're a the store of calcium, aren't they? And that's Really uh, I think important. it's the the, end, the ER, the endoplasmic reticulum. They they do. I think that if you load your your mitochondria with too much calcium, then they'll start going through apoptosis. Okay, and then are all mitochondria created equal? Uh, no. If you compare a heart mitochondria to a liver mitochondria, liver mitochondria is still very important for producing ATP, but it's doing all the kinds of functions which are important for the animal. Like talked about urea cycling. They're, they're not the same when you look at, when you compare them between different species, you know, warm-blooded animals versus cold-blooded animals, uh, animals of different sizes. Uh, I guess, you know, going back to mitochondria and different tissues, the, one of the major things I'm working on right now within the shrews is trying to look at these mitochondrial networks. And so this idea that, you know, all mitochondria are beans, because if you, if you look at a textbook and they show you mitochondria, you have this sort of little bean thing that's floating around inside of a larger cell. Um, and so mitochondria just, should just be beans that are pumping out ATP into the cell. But the reality is that in tissues that aren't, you know, things that like are in, in the muscle, mitochondria form these, these large networks. And so, you know, the, the, the structure of mitochondria totally differs depending on which tissue you're looking at. And that structure itself is actually important to the function. So that's, that's one of the major things that I'm looking at within uh, the shrews. Okay, so you've said that mitochondria change depending on the the tissue. 
you said that they mm -hmm. change depending on the the species right so cold and warm-blooded animals are different shrews have a lot more and then they um yep different size animals as well yeah okay and then you, your work with dr pat schult um suggested that there might be a difference depending on the conditions temperature for example um do you think yeah. there's a difference in age as well this is not something that I've, I've spent a lot of time looking at, but there's some thought that your, your mitochondria become or perform less well as you, as you age. And, you know, maybe that has something to do with increased, you know, accumulation of oxidative damage or, or something like that. So all mitochondria have their own genome. Yes. So is there any comparative study comparing these genomes and how different and how closely related they are? I'm not qualified to answer that question. <laughs> there are a lot of people who are, who are studying mitochondrial genomes with, within the comparative context. Some genes from a genome has moved into the mitochondria. Some mitochondrial genes have moved into the genome. Yeah. And that probably is quite different between different organisms. And whatever function the mitochondria has, you know, probably is, is kind of diverse. I mean, we inherit a whole bunch of mitochondria that might within the cell. It is it possible that the genome of a mitochondria is not quite exactly the same as another genome in another mitochondria inside the same cell? Is that possible? Uh, I imagine so. <laughs> I, I know that there are a lot of people who study sort of um, like the cytonuclear incompat incompatibilities. You know, so that the the mitochondrial genome. That you, that you inherit doesn't line up with the the nuclear encoded uh, subunits for mitochondrial protein subunits. Um, so I mean, there are there are people who there, there are a lot of people who do study that that kind of stuff. And I mean, people who within you know who study killifish, we're, we're we're looking at this kind of thing within the context of thermal physiology. Um, so you couldn't transplant mitochondria from one killifish that's in the imagine that people adapted and then put them in a, that ED egg or embryo. Well, that's, that's, that's when, um, when you're using those killifish, when um, being able to breed them in the lab becomes helpful, because I think that if you can control the maternal line and if you can, you know, if you can control the nuclear background, you know, you know exactly the, the lineage of that fish, then, then you can do sort of that transplant. I don't know that you're necessarily sucking out the mitochondria and then injecting them into, uh, into uh, an embryo, but, um, you know, using controlled, the controlled breeding, uh, you can you can do that for sure. That's fascinating. Cool. <laughs> that's a that's a cool experiment. I hope someone's done that. Changing the mitochondria, adding mitochondria, so you'd have multiple types and seeing how they end up. Um, let's talk just briefly about comparative physiology. So would you would you say that you're a comparative physiologist? You said you you, were, you study mitochondria in a comparative way. Yeah, um, I would say that. I mean, I, I would say that I'm a comparative physiologist. I've been trained as one. Uh, I haven't really strayed too far from the path. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would definitely say that. So, okay, so you've you've studied squirrels, you've studied shrews, you studied killifish, and you also mm -hmm. did something in the Antarctic as well, right? Yeah, uh, that's right. I participated in the NSF early career researcher field course in, in, in Antarctica. We were doing some thermal physiology with uh, with krill, with uh, Antarctic krill. That was a really interesting experience. How long did you stay there? Uh, um, so the way that the course normally runs is that you you go down 
uh, at least historically, they would go down to McMurdo. When we ran, when we were doing the course, we went down to uh, Palmer Station, which is on the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, we were both on station and uh, on an icebreaker, the Gould, back and forth for I think it was about four weeks. This is back in 2006 that I did this, so, or 2016 that I did this. So it was it was a bit ago, but yeah, the the whole course itself ran for about six to eight weeks, I believe, um, including travel time, which we had to crossing the Southern Ocean um, took, took, took a minute. <laughs> um, okay, so you studied squirrels and shrews, so you studied mammals, you studied fish, killfish, and you studied invertebrates, so um, the krill. But is there any other dream animal you want to study? So hibernators are, are, are great because there's a nice com comparison to the shrews because they do have sort of that very low metabolism during hibernation. The problem with that is that it's a very specific seasonal phenotype. So uh, if I were to try to move on to a new system and look at their mitochondria, I would probably try to look for something that just has a very low basal metabolism, like every single day. You know, I don't know whether or not sloths <laughs> sort of have, you know, a, a low metabolism. I think trying to get a permit to to collect sloth tissue would be pretty difficult. <laughs> um, so I mean, yeah, that that'd be that'd be a great that'd be interesting to do, but I think it'd be pretty difficult. Um, I'm I've never really been married to a specific system, a specific model organism. I, I think that you know lots of different animals do lots of different interesting things, and so you know if I can just find an interesting phenotype to use as a justification to look at the mitochondria, um, I'm I'm more than happy more than happy to to do that. I think this this to me makes you the the prototypical like the archetypical uh, comparative physiologist because. I always think of comparative physiologists as people who respect the Crow principle. Yeah. So yeah, I guess the Crow principle is something that's like drilled into most comparative physiologists brains. It's just this idea that, you know, for any question within you know, physiology, you should have a specific, or you should be able to find a model uh, in which you can best answer, address that question. Um, so yeah, like that's, that's done for your research career, like you come up with a question first, and then you think about the animal that would best answer that question. Right? Yeah. And I mean, for, for me, it's mostly just been, you know, how do mitochondria work and how do they allow animals to, to exist in whatever environment that they're in? So, you know, hibernators are suppressing their metabolism, you know, killifish are living in these different thermal environments and then shrews, they're just, you know, they, they live, shrews actually pretty widely distributed around the world, but how do they just exist per se because they just have such crazy high metabolism so um i guess i guess to some degree i, I do sort of chase after that that august crow lifestyle yeah and do comparative best. physiologists only think of complex multicellular organisms or would single cell organisms with mitochondria be of interest like uh, i don't know parasites <laughs> That is a really good question. I, I, at least in my experience, I've I've never met someone who would describe themselves as a comparative physiologist who who works on parasites. But now that it's coming out of my mouth, I'm I'm almost just as willing to take it back and say that if they did, then yeah, they would they would be a comparative physiologist, right? Um, but it could be really simple, like a nematode. But yeah. you know, if you think of uh, a parasite like Giardia, for example, then that's a single-celled organism. Mm -hmm. But they go through different life stages. They have mitochondria. Yeah. And I don't know <laughs> between these life stages what happens to them. 
So I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> about it. Peter Ochoska, the Canadian physiologist who studied hypoxia and hypometabolism and things, he, he studied brine shrimp at one point, I think. And that was pretty important because they can kind of just dry up and be mostly inactive for a while. And then they, then they come back. So yeah. I, I guess sort of like how small do you need to go before you're not a compared physiologist? And I guess that you can't go too small. <laughs> Interesting. That's so cool. All right, Dylan, how can listeners get a hold of you? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do have a, a Twitter. It's mostly just pictures of, I guess, mitochondria and then split with like my pets, but um, uh, just at Dylan Chung. So D-I-L-L-O-N-C-H-U-N-G. Yeah, I mean, that's that's mostly the way that I interface with the outside world. I, I do also have a, a website that's just dylanchung.com. That's all my you know research that's that's up there. So, Well, hey, it was really fun talking to you. Yeah, yeah I appreciate fascinating it. Fascinating research career. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, it was really interesting, Dylan, to meet you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is great. So thank you. Listen to more episodes of Beyond the Test Tube every 15th of every month, either on Google Play or Apple Podcasts, or visit our website on Simplecast Beyond the Test Tube.